Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord Yahweh your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. We talked last week about, you know, the proper sense of that word. I am a jealous God. And then literally the next line is very controversial. We'll talk about it later in the sermon. But he says, literally, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You know, the Catholics, Anglicans, and Lutherans combine the second commandment with the first commandment into a single command. Uh, and then they end up splitting the tenth commandment into two, two different commands. So we end up getting a little different numbering systems that, than they do for, the, for uh, the ten commandments. I'm pretty confident our tradition is correct to see one and two as separate commands. Because the first commandment is you're to have no other gods. The second commandment is... Really, it's focused on worship. How are we to worship the one true God? Uh, and it's not to be done with idols. That's what the larger catechism, which uh, we've included this, or are going to include this each week, uh, tends to focus on in questions 108 and 109. What does the second commandment require? The second commandment requires us to receive, respectfully perform, and preserve completely and purely all the regulations for religion and worship that God has established in his word. These include prayer and thanksgiving in the name of Christ, the reading, preaching, and hearing of the word, the administration of and receiving the sacraments, church government and discipline, the administration and upkeep of the church, religious fasting, swearing by the name of God, and making vows to him, Also included are disapproving, denouncing, and opposing false worship and doing our best in accordance with our position and calling life to eliminate it in all forms of idolatry. It's kind of of a curious direction, isn't it, that the larger catechism writers chose to go? Because we probably wouldn't immediately uh, track down that road on our own when we read, you shall have no other gods before me. What particular sins does the second commandment forbid? The second commandment forbids imagining, recommending, demanding, practicing, or any way approving any religious worship not established by God himself. The creation of any likenesses of invented gods, any worship of them or service relating to them, and all superstitious contrivances also forbidden are any departure from the true worship of God by adding to or taking away from it, whether by our own invention or received from some other tradition, and whether justified by antiquity, custom, devotional practice, good intentions, or any other excuse, and simony, and anything sacrilegious, and finally, any neglect of, contempt for, hindering, or opposition to the worship and regulations established by God. There's a lot there. Um, Why don't we pray, and we'll we'll make our prayer simple. (laughs) We'll, We'll pray about our hearts. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, 
recalling the words of the Apostle John at the end of 1 John, his, his first epistle, where he said, simply, little children, keep yourselves from idols. We pray for your help that we would do that. And, and wherever, wherever our hearts have, have grown attached to things that are false, uh, that replace you, um, like wherever we are guilty of any form of idolatry, uh, and remembering that we, we produce idols so easily, we're like idol factories, please God, divorce us from those bad lovers and unite us in love to yourself. For we ask this through Jesus Christ our Lord and God's people said, amen. Uh, to start off, what you need to know is I've tried really hard to cut down on my Lord of the Rings sermon illustrations. <laughs> Have you, has anybody noticed that? So uh, my kids clued me into the fact that it was it was getting a little out of hand. <laughs> I've gone about I don't know a month or two without any Lord of the Rings illustrations, but this week I'm I can't help it. <laughs> and because what is the the most classic? Example of an idol that is found in J.R.R. Tolkien's work. It's, a, it's, of course, the Ring of Power. We read of Smeagol, who was once a primitive hobbit, who finds the Ring of Power on a birthday fishing episode and kills his friend to acquire it. He falls in love with the Ring of Power, and it becomes what? It becomes his precious. Um, it's everything to him. And he thinks, he thinks the Ring of Power is... Is everything he ever wanted. It's going to make his life you know, great. But over time, what ends up happening is it just warps him. I mean, he changes physically. He becomes deformed. Internally, he becomes deformed. He starts making guttural noises that even change his name from Smeagol to Gollum. Uh, he, he's, the ring of power leads him to flee from all other people, and he lives on his own. And, and he, where does he live? He lives in the dark. He goes and lives in the dark, and the ring of power turns him into this sniveling, eavesdropping thief. And after basically destroying his life, he gets to, the, uh, to Mount Doom, and there, you know, in the lava of Mount Doom, the ring of power destroys him completely. And that is Tolkien's example, just a classic example of an idol. I'd say that over the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot of great literature written on this topic. Uh, some of you have read Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. We might, might have that on our book table, I can't recall. Dan Allender's book, Breaking the Idols of Your Heart. That is very, very good. Um, and then David Pallison, everything he touches turns to gold. I love David Pallison. But he's written several really helpful articles just on the matter of our hearts and idolatry. And so what I would do is I, I would recommend to you, if you want to do a deep, a really deep dive into the topic of idolatry, then look into some of those resources. And this is a new category for you. If you've been around All Saints for any length of time, I mean, you've heard me talk about it uh, because it's a perennial problem and because, uh, I mean, it's just something that keeps coming up in the Bible over and over again. And any of those resources are really quite helpful. I, I recommend them to you. What I want to do, though, first is by noting to start out that the people who received the Ten Commandments, 
these thousands and thousands of Israelites at the foot of the mountain, you know, they didn't grow up with the Ten Commandments, right? They had them been written. They didn't grow up with uh, the Bible either because Moses hadn't written that. What did these people grow up with? What was formative for their life and their world? Quite simply, Egypt. And everything that they were taking in from their society and culture, I mean, they would see all of these little gods, figurines, statues, uh, paintings, frescoes, all of that had to have gotten into their mental formatting. And so while I'm sure a good conscientious Israelite parent would have said to their child, uh, now little Susie or, or little Johnny, you know, we don't worship those other gods, but we worship Yahweh. Yet what, what they're taking in all the time from their culture is, is this. That's what's programming them. That's what's intuitive and just seems right to them. So when we have Aaron fashioning the golden calf at the foot of, of um, Mount Sinai, he said, he said, listen, Israel, we're going to hold a feast to Yahweh and we will celebrate our liberation from Egypt. Very important because he didn't say, we're, we're not going to have a feast to Ra or a feast to Baal or a feast to Ashtoreth. So we're going to have a feast to Yahweh. Yet what did he use as the centerpiece for that religious festival. He used a picture from Egypt because that was what was so, of course, natural to them. Um, why not use a representative piece of artwork to, to represent God? Because that's exactly the world that they lived in. All over the ancient Near East, you probably know, all the gods were always represented by fish and bulls and calves or as human beings in figurine form. Oftentimes the figurines, the statues were rather sensual and obscene in shape. Um, but the gods, they came in all sizes. Some of them were immense. Some of them were tiny. But idolatry was just part and parcel of life. Um, nothing could be more natural to them. Where am I going with this? I was reading in my Bible study, uh, I don't know, recently, from uh, 2 Kings chapter 23. And it is the story of the great king, one of the most famous kings of Israel, Josiah, and the reforms that he introduced into the country. This is about 700 years or so after the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments. Now, I, I want you just to listen for a second to the sheer proliferation of idols that existed in their day. We read this, that King Josiah got rid of everything in the temple of God that had been made for the worshiping of false gods. He took out the obscene phallic Asherah pole from the temple to the valley of Kidron outside Jerusalem, and he burned it up, and then he ground up the ashes and scattered them in the cemetery. Then he tore out the rooms of the sacred uh, male prostitutes that had been set up in the temple. And these same rooms were used by women for their weavings for Asherah. Then he swept the outlying towns of Judah clean of priests and smashed their sex and religion shrines that they had worked their trade from, from one end of the country to the other. Then he demolished the Topheth, the iron furnace griddle that was set up in the valley of Ben-Hinnom for sacrificing children in the fire. No longer could anyone burn their son or daughter in the fire to the god of Molech. Because he, he destroyed the Topheth. 
And then he hauled off the horse statues, honoring the sun god that the kings of Judah had set up near the entrance to the temple. Then he burned up the sun chariots as so much rubbish. Then he smashed the altar on the roof shrine of Ahaz, the various altars the kings of Judah had made, the altars of Manasseh that had littered the courtyard of the temple. He smashed them all, pulverized them to fragments, and scattered their dust in the valley of Kidron. That's a lot of idols, isn't it? Where do they all come from? Where, where, do they, where do they get all of those? It was all stuff from their surrounding culture. It was, it was just part of their mental formatting. And here's where I'm going with this. And I don't know that this is terribly profound, or maybe you probably have thought of this before, but my, I suspect that when God assesses us one day, and he's sort of unveiling our sins and unmasking, and he unmasks our idols. What's going to happen is we're going to be like, what? That was, I, I thought that was just being an American. Or I thought that was just being a suburbanite in Idaho. Or what? I just thought all of that's an idol? That just seemed so natural to me and the way that I did life. And I think that's what will happen. It will be things that seem so intuitively right to us because we've been immersed in our culture. And that's what we're taking in day in and day out. If Israel is any indication, then it'll be like that. And it, it, it's also an indication that we, we probably have a lot of them. <laughs> you know, if her proliferation of idols is it at all instructive of our own, then we probably... We have a lot of them that we need to deal with. Writes one author, good definition, uh, or a good way of thinking about an idol. An idol, he says, is something that has such a controlling position in your, position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and your energy or your emotional and financial resources, you can spend it on, on it without a second thought without batting an eye. An idol is something that you just, you naturally, you know, spend your money and your emotion and your passion and your energy on um, without even really thinking about it. It just comes second nature to you. Kind of makes sense because idols throughout all of antiquity require sacrifices, and so you sacrifice to the idol, and that's not so different in modernity. We sacrifice to our idols, that whenever something becomes our heart's preoccupation, our emotions get all tied up in it, and we be- begin to develop needs and expectations centered around it. And so we won't bat an eye when we reorient our lives um, towards it or around it. Here's another way of putting it. Every one of us has our own sort of heaven and hell. <laughs> uh, For example, maybe you're a single woman and your view of hell is forever single, no boyfriend, no potential husband, no children, just cats. (laughs) And And that's your hell. Well, what's your heaven? Your heaven is boyfriend, fiance, husband, kids, and Mother's Day, right? And so here's the question. How do you get out of hell and get into heaven? You run into the arms of the functional God called 
romantic love, male attention and affection, and you throw your arms around him and you say, be the center of my life and make my life worth living. Now, that's a little hyperbolic, but just only a little, because that is how we work. We do this with all sorts of things. Really, an idol is any, anything, whatever you look at and you say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll be happy, and then I'll feel significant, and then I'll be secure, and then everything will be all right. And we have all kinds of things like that, don't we? As I said, if you want to do a deeper dive into um, this concept, if it's new to you, then pick up Keller or Allender or Pallison. The only other thing I want to say, I, I really didn't want the sermon to be a whole lot about, uh, you know, find your, your deepest idol. And, um, but one of the things that all of the authors differentiate between is between a surface-level idol and a deep idol. A surface-level idol is going to be money, career, sex, tennis. Those things that you notice that you're just over-attached to. There's a disproportionate magnetism towards. Um, That's a surface-level idol. But underneath, and we don't want to press this too far. I mean, it sounds a little Freudian, but if you keep it in its proper context, underneath, those surface-level idols are serving the deeper idols, like comfort, control, power, approval. We use the surface-level idols to serve the deep idols. And I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Like I, When I wrote my sermon initially, I didn't even put this in my manuscript. <laughs> but as I was driving to church today, I thought, okay, I, I'll just be honest with you. And maybe I've already shared this with you before, but one of, one of my surface-level idols is, is college, is getting my kids into the right college. I mean, how ridiculous is that? But I spend an inordinate amount of time researching and figuring out, like, what is the perfect fit for my kids? Um, well, what is, that's the surface. What's the deeper level um, that that's serving? I, it's probably, it's, I might be idolizing my kids, right? <laughs> I, I, I may be trying to live vicariously through my kids, and if my kids can have the greatest college experience ever, then I get a little bit of that myself. Um, by the way, I have two kids in college and, and one who is going to be a senior and head, head there. And so, I mean, I've been, I just dig and dig and research and try to find the, the right thing. And um, I mean, it's a little embarrassing to, to tell you that, but that's, but it's real. That's what I, I deal with. And look at the Bible. What does the Bible tell us we're supposed to do with our idols? What did Josiah do with all of the proliferation of idols in his day? He burned them to the ground and he cast their ashes everywhere. Um, is, that the, or is that the attitude I take towards my idols? Well, in this case, usually no, because my idols are, are fairly functional idols. I, I'm not a meth addict. And and, and actually, you might pat me on the back for, for doing such a good job of, of raising my kids and getting them into the best institution. We talked about it last week, how not all idols are equally functional. Some are very functional and, and others are not. But um, here's the thing. When you discover what it is you're really serving, are you, are you really committed to putting it to death and destroying it? And... That's something I, I realize I've got to wrestle with for myself is, 
am I really going to do the, the necessary heart work of, of destroying it? And not destroying, you know, my kids, but, but the idolization of my family, which is a very suburban American kind of thing to do, isn't it? So that's just an example of maybe some of the work that you might want to do in your own heart. Returning back, though, to the narrow confines of images that are used in worship. I want to mention this briefly before I go on because it is a controversy in our denomination. And what I'm referring to are pictures of Jesus Christ. Uh, Some people in the PCA believe that any depiction of Jesus Christ, be it a children's Sunday school material uh, or a stained glass window or a religious painting uh, or a sculpture, all of those are violations of the second commandment. Uh, Sunday school teachers for the little kids, have you noticed that in all of your um, materials, you can have pictures of all the 12 apostles, but there's no Jesus in any of them? Because our Sunday school material from Great Commission Publications holds to this. They, they, They will not do any pictures of Jesus. And in fact, that was the position of the Westminster Assembly that we follow. Um, and they would even object to any artistic representations. Say, you know, the classic, one of the um, oldest pictures of Christianity is the fish, right? The ichthus. Well, that, they would object to that. Or a dove, which is a, a biblical symbol of the Holy Spirit. Or a cross. If I'm not mistaken, in most of the Westminster divine churches, they would not even have a representa- representation of the cross in those churches. Are pictures of Jesus completely outlawed by the second commandment? Um, I, I don't think that they are. Now, the Westminster Divines would say even a mental picture of Jesus is wrong. And maybe this is too much of a rabbit trail, but isn't it true the way that we read? When you are reading something and you read about Paul the Apostle, I think it's probably impossible not to get a mental picture of Paul the Apostle or of Moses when you're reading in the Bible. I mean, isn't that just the way our brains work when we read? And what I would suggest to you is even if you have never in your whole life ever seen a picture of Jesus Christ, nevertheless, when you read the Bible, you, you get a picture of him. Now, is that picture going to be necessarily accurate? No. <laughs> um, are there going to be inaccuracies in that mental representation? Yes. But, but we all get pictures of people. Why? Because they are people with human bodies, and we read about them. That's just the way that, uh, how we think of human beings. And so, remember too that there were many Christians who had actually seen Jesus Christ as a man and remembered what he looked like for years afterwards. Was it a sin for those Christians to remember the picture, the image of Jesus they had seen? I would respectfully disagree. Where I think the sin is, and I mean, I, I'm um, breaking some with our own tradition by allowing for pictures, limited pictures of Jesus. Where I think the sin is, is when you take that picture of Jesus and you start to bow down to it, and you start to honor it, and you start to use it as a tool for worship, which, as you may know, happened very early in church history. The utilizing of icons of Jesus for the purposes of worship. So let me read to you 
and see if you can follow the logic. This was from a church council in the 700s that was dealing with the matter of icons and images. Let's see what you think of their reasoning. They write, As the sacred and life-giving cross is everywhere set up as a symbol, so also should the images of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the holy angels, as well as those of the saints and other pious and holy men, be embodied in in the manufacture of sacred vessels, tapestries, vestments, etc., and exhibited on the walls of churches and homes and in all conspicuous places by the roadside and everywhere to be revered by all who might see them. For the more they are contemplated, the more they move to fervent memory of their prototypes. Therefore, it is proper to accord them a fervent and reverent adoration, not the veritable worship, which according to our faith belongs to the divine being alone. For the honor accorded to the images passes over to its prototype, and whoever adores the image adores in it the reality of what is there represented." So what are they saying? They're saying with these pictures, what we are to do is give them honor and fervent adoration, but not worship, but honor and fervent adoration, and it passes through the image to the prototype, which is the person of Jesus. Do you know what I think that is? That is a distinction without a difference. (laughs) When you are honoring and fervently adoring the picture... You are, I'm quite confident, in violation of the second commandment. And so um, that is why we don't, uh, in any way, hold up a picture of Jesus and kiss it or prostrate ourselves before it because um, that is forbidden in God's law. What are we to make of the controversial verse 5, if you want to look there with me? The threat that we have attached to the second commandment. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am Yahweh your God, a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the children of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those that hate me. Um, and this is a warning that gets repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament. Numbers fourteen eighteen, Jeremiah 32, 18. What does it mean? Is God saying that if you sin against me, then I will punish your great, great, grandchildren for your sin. Is he saying there is a generational sort of sin hex and curse upon succeeding generations? I think the answer is no, because in Deuteronomy 24, 16, we read these words. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die according to their own sin. Each will be judged according to their own sin. So that's not what he's saying. What I think he is saying, he's just pointing to something that we understand, I think, very well, and that is the ripple effect of sin through generations. Like, give me an angry father, and I I guarantee you he will produce angry sons and angry daughters. Give me a really insecure mother, and I guarantee you she's She's going, that is going to infiltrate into her, her own daughters. Um, we, we say the same thing about any types of addictions. Um, you know, uh, if, if, you know, drug addicts often spring from 
uh, addicted parents in turn to marry addicted spouses and produce addicted children. We could say the same for racism. We could say the same for materialism. Materialist parents, we pass that on. So what, 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 it, what God is doing here is he, he is warning us and saying, you don't want to pass your idolatries to your kids. Isn't that one of the most frightening things that we do? We pass our idolatries to our kids. It's also such a magnificent word by saying, if you will love me, if you will love me, you can stop generations and cycles of, of um, perpetuation. Like there's a way to stop the ripple effect. It's remarkably ennobling to think that maybe my granddad was like this and my dad was like this and, and I'm tempted to be like this, but I am not going to be like this because I don't want my son to be like this. Do you know what I'm saying? It's a wonderful promise that things can be changed. Paul Tripp, um, I'm going to conclude with this, with this and one other thing. Paul Tripp wrote a great, what I would call peer counseling book entitled Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. We also might have that one on the book table. But it's, it's good, it's useful for how do we have gospel deep conversations with fellow Christian, fellow Christian friends. And he's telling the story in there of a, a man who he was counseling in New York City, a very successful executive who was a, a controlling man. That was his deeper level idol. Very controlling. Or in Paul Tripp's words, quote, the most controlling man I've ever met in my life. He had been married for 30 years and he was the one who handled all, all of the financial and the parenting and the decorating decisions for the family. This man was so obsessed with control that he would rearrange his wife's clothes closet according to his prescribed plan blouses, skirts, pants, and dresses, and graduated shades of color. He goes on, now imagine if I were to sit down with that couple, him and his wife, imagine I didn't know that. I didn't know about his controlling tendencies. And as she's telling me her story about, oh, we have communication problems, you know, we don't, we don't talk really well together, and we have some conflict re- resolution problems, we have conflict and we don't kind of get things solved very well. What if, he says, what would happen if I rolled up my counselor sleeves and gave the husband and wife good biblical instruction on couples communication and conflict resolution? Would that lead to transformative changes in the marriage? Would it? Of course it wouldn't. He said, if anything, it would make the marriage worse. If my counsel didn't address the man's idols of his heart, what would happen is it would probably only produce a more successful controller. In fact, so long as this man is ruled by his lust for power and control, he's likely to use whatever biblical principles and skills I give him (laughs) to that end, to establish even greater control over his family. And I think what what Tripp is getting at there is... When we are having conversations with one another and when, you know, your friend is telling you their side of the marriage story, their side of the story, are you in your conversations ever getting down to the deeper matters of the idols of the heart? Because more than likely, that is somewhere in play. 
our hearts are always being ruled by someone or something. And whatever is the deep issues of my heart, those are going to condition and control my responses to people, events, and those around me. And what, we, what often happens in our communication is we'll talk about the surface level issue, kind of their stuff as they communicate it to us, but we really never go with them and dig any deeper about, well, are there any idolatries at play in your heart or in his heart or overall? Isn't that true? We just rarely... I find we rarely have those kinds of deeper gospel conversations. And we need to, don't we? Let me conclude then with a silly thought experiment that I heard. Um, what if you came up to me at the end of the service and you introduced yourself as, Hi, I'm, I'm Mr. So-and-so. I'm a neurosurgeon. I work at St. Luke's downtown. I'm doing some really cool research on this and that project. Uh, I'm originally from Minnesota big Minnesota Vikings fan, and I love to go to the symphony. And I looked back at you, and I said, well, it's great to meet you, so-and-so, but I prefer to think of you as uh, an accountant from Chicago who loves bluegrass. (laughs) That's going to be pretty weird, won't it? (laughs) Because it's going to introduce a distortion into the relationship. I'm not taking you on your terms. And I think that is what we, we do with God. Um, it, especially common today for Christians to, to um, have this huge disparity between the loving, kind Jesus of the New Testament and the vengeful, holy, angry Yahweh of the Old Testament. And so they say, well, let's just, let's just focus only on what Jesus does, does and says. And, and let's not pay any attention to this God in the Old Testament. And what you end up doing is you have a truncated and distorted vision of God. Because God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is all the God of the Bible. Yahweh of the Old Testament is the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Jesus of the New Testament, it's the same God on every page. So what I would challenge you to do, if you're a person who does have morning devotional times where you're studying the scriptures and praying, make it your point to not just read and check that off of your box. Make your time in the Bible and in prayer a real journey to, to, to understand God better, to know God better. I, know, I find that I oftentimes am just getting through my Bible study because I'm supposed to. Check that box, get my day started. And I don't have a heart that is saying, I really am doing this so that I might know all of God better. Um, and that's another really strong argument for making sure that you're reading plenty of the Old Testament and the New because it's, it's all of the God. Um, It's the same God. And when you do this, what you'll find is everything you're looking to your idol to provide you, you already have in that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like all of the value and worth and emotions of joy and contentment and all of the identity that you need are found ultimately in the full God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's ironically our idols that are driving us away from the, sor- the true source of these things. And so, yeah, I would encourage you, um, make it your aim to have a fuller vision of God so that you would worship him um, in, in, completely and truly as he is revealed to you. Amen.